Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald, welcoming to the studio Charles Iceland. Charles is the director of Aqueduct, uh, WRI's tool for measuring and mapping water risk. Charlie, welcome to the show. Lawrence, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. It was my privilege, Charlie, to work with you on a commentary, a sort of an extended essay that you published late last year, Water Stress is Helping Drive Conflict and Migration. How Should the Global Community Respond? Uh, that commentary has caused a bit of a stir uh, in the water community, as I understand it. I'm delighted to hear that. I thought today we might unpack some of the main arguments and ideas in that commentary and also ask you for an update on uh, new things going on in water world, if we could. Sure, yes. The, the issue of water and security is a lively uh, one and, and, and one that's being updated on a regular basis by events. I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with the idea that water is very scarce in some places, uh, overly abundant in others, and that climate change is making water stress worse. What interests me about the work that you lead in Aqueduct is the quantification and the addition of fine-grained information about our understanding of what stress is, our understanding of where it's occurring, and how it might change over time given what we know about population growth estimates and climate models. Let's start with the understanding of water stress. I think in Aqueduct, there's like 12 different indicators of stress. We're not going to cover them all. But, but talk to me about how do we quantify stress in a way that can then be meaningful for people who are looking to reduce water stress? Sure. Well, uh, Aqueduct breaks the world down into 15,000 unique uh, sub-basins. And for each of these sub-basins, we measure how much water is used so water demand, and how much water is available, the, the water supply. So water stress is just the ratio of that water demand to water supply. And as you get closer and closer to using up your 100% of your supply, your stress levels are going up, and there's a likelihood that, that uh, users in that sub-basin won't be getting the water they need, either for their personal use or their economic use. So... That's very helpful. Talk to me about the supply data first. I'm guessing supply is some combination of groundwater and rainfall and runoff. Is that mostly going to be satellite data on the supply side? Yes. Well, it, it starts off as satellite data. So we have uh, information on, on rainfall going back about 60 years uh, on a monthly basis. And we also measure other biophysical uh, parameters that influence how much of that raindrop ends up in a river uh, and, and flows downstream as surface water. And then we have other models which will uh, indicate uh, how much, how much of, of that rainfall ends up in groundwater, replenishing uh, aquifers. So you've got, you've got data and models of rainfall all around the world divided into, you said, 15,000 sub-basins. And I'm guessing a water basin is sort of a catchment area, right? Yeah. It's an area of land where um, all the water that, that falls on that piece of land uh, gets channeled into a particular stream or, or other body of surface water. So the supply data 
presumably is changing over time as a result of climate change. Is that incorporated in your models as well? Uh, well, uh, the supply goes up and down, uh, uh, you know, month by month, uh, year by year. Um, you, you know that that weather weather is hard to predict because it's changing all the time. So, so what we do is, is we take average uh, annual amounts of water supply over the past sixty years, uh, so so that we know. Uh, in in any of these fifteen thousand catchments, what what's the average amount of, of supply? But we also want to look at at the uh, peaks and troughs of of the water supply. So so we look at at measures of drought and and measures of, of having too much water. Uh, so we quantify that as well. So that's the supply data. Now talk to me about demand. And something I always struggle with on demand for water is. When I use the water, say, for irrigation or to cool a power plant or even I drink it, it doesn't disappear. It disappears if it evaporates. But if I use it and then it goes back into the system, it might be degraded, but it's still there. So when you talk about demand, this is sort of maybe almost existential thing. What does that mean that you've used the water in the watershed? Does it mean that it's gone or that it's just maybe passed through me or passed through a cooling plant for a power plant? Well, wh whenever you withdraw water from a stream or lake, there's a part that gets uh, lost to that catchment as, as um, evaporation or, or if it's through plants, through transpiration. So that's the amount that's lost until the next rain. Uh, then there's the other part is the part that kind of goes back into the stream, as you said, maybe a little dirtier, but probably usable if, if, if you have uh, infrastructure to clean water uh, from rivers. Uh, so, so, yeah, the, the part that's consumed is that part that evaporates and gets lost to your catchment or, or basin uh, until the next rain. And that's what you water wonks mean when you say withdrawals. Uh, well, there's withdrawal, so that's how much I'm taking out. There's the consumptive use, okay, the part that gets evaporated, and then there's the return flow. So, so the withdrawal equals the consumptive use plus the return flow. I see. So if we look at an aqueduct map, if you, if you haven't seen one, I urge you to go online, look at the aqueduct maps. It'll scare the bejesus out of you because a whole bunch of the world is orange or red. And if you look ahead at the time forecast, more and more of it gets orange or red because more and more of the world is following, falling into a state of water stress. So what does that mean for those societies when water stress goes up? Well, you know, so, so as I mentioned, the, the higher, the closer and closer you get to using up all your water, uh, the more likely it is that different users within your region aren't going to have enough water. And it might be that, that a certain percentage of the population in that region doesn't have enough drinking water or water for sanitation. It could mean that certain industries in that region don't get the water they need, and, and therefore uh, their production plants have to, to stop. Uh, it could be that energy plants become idled and, and you don't have enough electric power. Uh, it, it could be that you can no longer irrigate your crops and, and therefore you become more food insecure. So, so that's, that's what happens in a, uh, th those are the things that could happen in a place of high water stress. I think a lot of 
our listeners are familiar with the idea that the civil war in Syria was prompted in part, a contributing factor was water stress, and I've read, perhaps in your work or other places, that uh, one of the things that the Assad regime did, which in hindsight was a bad idea, was to make a push for food self-sufficiency, and uh, often those turned out to be through water-intensive crops. So there was an over-exploitation of the groundwater combined with drought, which may or may not be connected to climate change, fed massive migration into the cities, and then that sparked, helped to provide sort of the tinder for the rebellion that led to the Civil War. But I also heard recently that there was a research paper came out, maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't, that said, balderdash, we don't really know what caused the war. There were a whole lot of factors, and the water story is just one of many, many stories. Where do you come down on that? Uh, well, there, there's certainly uh, been a, a lively debate uh, over the role of water stress and drought in, in, the, in the Syrian conflict. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that the five years leading up to the Civil War were, were the, the five uh, constituted the, the worst drought in, in Syria's recorded history. Um, I, I also noted, as you noted, that, that Syria uh, built up a very extended vulnerability uh, to drought uh, by pursuing food self-sufficiency policies that, that year in and year out used up more water than, than they had in rainfall and therefore caused their groundwater levels to, to decline. So uh, I, I would say it was one of many factors that led to this conflict. J just like for any conflict, there, there are usually a number of, of factors involved. It's not usually one thing or two things. It's a confluence of, of a number of, of things, sometimes uh, more biophysical, sometimes more social and political, sometimes economic. And I guess we see similar factors at work across North Africa. I mean, certainly when I look at your water stress maps, much of North Africa is red. And with the expansion of the Sahara Desert further into sub-Saharan Africa, more of those societies are also subject to stress due to water, which in turn is driving migration towards Europe. Is that the case? Yeah, well, what we're seeing in, in the Sahel region, which is the, the dry area just below the Sahara, is the, that there's been a number of decades now of below normal rainfall. And there's also growing populations in these countries. So, so on the one side, your, your water availability is declining because of reduced rainfall. Uh, on the other side of the equation, your water demand is increasing. And so that's causing a lot of farmers in the region uh, and herdsmen uh, as well not to have as much water as they need to, to, to earn livelihoods. And, and a lot of those people uh, end up leaving uh, the, the countryside for the regional cities uh, in, in Western or Eastern Africa. Uh, if they don't find a decent uh, livelihood there, then many of these, especially young men, then try to cross the, the Mediterranean to Europe to, to find uh, livelihoods and, and especially uh, money that they can send back to their families who are, who are back in the Sahel without uh, means of, of earning their livelihoods. I want to turn now to the role of the kind of data that you and your colleagues provide in Aqueduct to 
defining problems, focusing on problems, and incentivizing solutions. So you and your colleagues recently uh, wrote a blog post, I hope all of our listeners will read it, that identified falling reservoir uh, levels. I think this is available in Aqueduct and also on the new Resource Watch platform in Morocco, Spain, Iraq, and India. And I was asking you in the hallway, well, don't people there know that the reservoirs are down? And you had some interesting hypotheses, theories about how the elevation and attention to this data, the fact that WRI writes a blog and then Newsbedia picks up and reports on it, might play out. And it could play out in a lot of different ways. But let's take any one of those countries and you tell me a story about how that data might get used to drive solutions. Sure. Well, let, let's take Morocco as an example. We looked at the Almasira Dam and its reservoir uh, and, and discovered that over the past three years, uh, water levels in, in that reservoir declined by 60 to 65 percent. Um, and that was due to uh, what's been a, a very severe drought over the past couple of years. Um, did the Moroccans know about this drought? Of course. Uh, how do we know that? Well, the, the king of Morocco asked his people to pray for rain. So not only did the king know about it, all his people knew about it, they were praying for rain. I think the problem is that, that a lot of these people, maybe including the king, don't understand all the ramifications of not having enough water. People can think about the farmer and his or her inability to farm without water, but they might not be thinking of the fact that a lot of their energy uh, depends on water for, for cooling, or that um, <clears throat> irrigation water uh, uh, is what is mainly responsible for, for putting food on their plates if, if you're an urban dweller, or um, the, the fact that your, your city's uh, uh, water taps could be shut off if, if levels in the reservoir go down to, 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 to a, a low to too low <laughs> a level. This reminds me, of course, of day zero. There was a lot of coverage in the popular press about Cape Town approaching day zero. And in the end, I guess some rain came and conservation worked and day zero has now been put off for several more months. But it, it galvanized people's attention to the fact that cities, and we saw similar things, I guess, in the um, southwest of Brazil where cities that are highly dependent on reservoirs are sometimes close to closer to the edge than we might imagine. Yeah, well, well, Cape Town is, it's a, a city in a very arid place, you know, like Las Vegas or, or Phoenix, uh, or so, so many of our cities are, are in, you know, semi, semi-arid parts of the world. A, and these cities are growing by leaps and bounds, you know, more and more uh, people from the countryside are leave, leaving the countryside and moving to cities. Uh, population levels keep going up, and, uh, you know, people in cities are becoming wealthier using more water. So when you have a concentrated uh, number of people, in, in Cape Town's uh, case, four million people, with, you know, gaining an affluence and, and using more and more water, and all of a sudden you shut off the water, then you have a, a, a huge number of people facing a, a very severe crisis. Uh, here they, they were going to limit these people to 25 liters a day uh, when day zero were, was to come. 
Um, I do want to leave our listeners with two dire uh, pictures, so I'm turning to the uh, page nine of your commentary. How should the global community respond to, to the growing water crisis? Unless people think that there's no solutions or just one or two, I'm just going to read them out. Develop water data and information systems. We've talked about the power of data. Cap water usage. Employ water-efficient technologies and practices. Uh, plant water-efficient, drought-resistant crops. Identify cost-efficient ways to reduce water pollution. Expand green and gray water storage infrastructure. Raise water prices. It goes on. It sounds like there are a lot of things that we actually know how to do. Yeah, the, the, the technical means for reducing our water stress are easy to understand. It doesn't require rocket science. The, the hardest thing is... Uh, the, the politics of curtailing water use. Uh, okay, you want to take it for the farmers, they're going to cry bloody murder if you try to take it away from them. You're going to try to take it away from industry, well, there goes your GDP. Uh, you know, are you going to take it away from people? Well, they're, they're going to cry out about the, you know, the, the, the right to water. But it, it needn't be zero sum, right? If you increase efficiency or you increase storage capacity, um, then these needs can all be met. Well, uh, sometimes it's zero sum. Sometimes it's not zero sum. So, so, so if if you're if you can do it all on if, on the basis of efficiency, um, th then you're in a, in a nice position. But but uh, not every uh, area of the world facing water stress. Uh, has that luxury. So sometimes uh, they have very water-efficient crop production, as they do in California. And um, when, when the drought comes, the, the irrigators have to stop, or, or, or at least the governor uh, begs those irrigators to stop, uh, because there, there's no more uh, water efficiency to be wrung out of agriculture. Uh, that's very different in a, in a part of the world where, where where crops are are irrigated via very inefficient flood irrigation. Yes, you just drench the entire field. Yeah, there there you lose a lot of water to immediate evaporation. It, it doesn't go into growing crops at all. Um, it, it's just wasted, and so there you have a big opportunity. If you could give one piece of advice to people, say our listeners who are concerned about water stress and want policymakers and others to take steps to alleviate it, what's the one piece of advice you would offer them? Well, agriculture consumes about 80% of the water that, that's consumed around the world. And that's true whether you're a developing country or a developed country, uh, by and large. Um, so what you need to do is, is solve the problem of agriculture, either, either move from flood irrigation to drip irrigation or plant more water-efficient crops, or not plant crops uh, altogether. It might be that in Saudi Arabia, for example, it just doesn't make sense to irrigate uh, huge wheat fields. Uh, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense uh, from, from a water supply and water demand perspective. Import the wheat from Canada or some yes. wetter place instead. Yes. Import, it, import water in the form of... of, of uh, uh, food. 
Um, I, I mean, on the other hand, if you do that, then you lose some degree of food security. So, so there are some trade-offs between water security and food security. But, but solving the problem of agriculture is, is, is the first thing you need to do in, in, in solving the water puzzle in, in your part of the world. Charlie, thanks so much for joining me today. The thing I take away from your work, I actually feel more hopeful about the water work than I do about some other areas, including climate, is there are indeed a huge number of solutions out there, and the kind of data that you and your colleagues are providing can incentivize civil society, policymakers, companies to take action to address these problems. So on this particular one, I feel pretty hopeful. But Thank you for all your work, and thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks, Lawrence. It's been a pleasure. This has been the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. My guest today is Charles Iceland. He's the Director of Global and National Water Initiatives at WRI and oversees our work with Aqueduct, the world's largest publicly available platform for measuring and mapping water stress. You can find the WRI podcast online on iTunes and on Stitcher. I hope you'll join us for another podcast soon. Thanks so much for listening.